Maguire, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, given that I spent Saturday afternoon watching Ternier College Rugby Club avoid relegation with their sixth win in the last seven games against Young Munster, uh, I feel it's fitting to start with an article by Jerry Thornley, or to comment, to comment on this article by Jerry Thornley, uh, titled Struggling Clubs Resembling the Neglected Child of Irish Rugby, where he uh, interviewed... Uh, a chief Alakadu from Lansdowne who uh, took out the world's smallest violin and started playing about how, <laughs> how poor they were. Um, it's an interesting conversation that we've broached a couple of times before. Uh, it's sort of brought, a, brought to a head by the existence of the Cara Cup, which has um, taken a couple of uh, provincial players from various clubs at key times during the AIL league season. And... You have a theory behind why that happened. I see it as a power grab by Noosa for us. So when the BNI Cup went uh, belly up, the provinces were left. So the BNI Cup had been going for four seasons, longer than that. Longer than that, as as an outlet for the second tier of professional players to running, gain running in tandem with the European Cup. Yeah. So the, good point. Yeah. So the matches were played on the same weekends as as the Heineken Cup matches. Uh, Pools of four, same format. Yeah, um, it had been won in recent seasons by both Leinster and Munster. Um, it had proved the the springboard for a number of guys to go on to professional rugby, but also on to international rugby. Sometimes within the case of like within a space of twelve months. Like certainly, I remember Marty McGo- or Marty Moore playing uh, for the BNI Cup team and then less than 12 months later being capped for Ireland. Same thing happened with uh, Jack McGrath and Dave Carney. They played BNI Cup in January and they played um, they played November Internationals. This is 2013. Um, and anyway, it, it the fixtures went. Um, so the second tier guys weren't left with matches throughout the season. They played and a Celtic Cup at the start of the yeah. year. Uh, which is very similar as a replacement to the BNI Cup group stages, except that it was played solely in, in September and October. Again, that was won by uh, Leinster this year, and it's in inaugural year. And Nusafora wants a situation where he's got a, a third tier of sort of bubbling under professional players. And what was proposed was to have uh, a semi-pro or pro, I don't know, what, like it couldn't be pro, because I mean the clubs couldn't afford it, uh, AL Division 1 with uh, f- eight teams, two from each of the four provinces, and thereafter you'd have meritocracy, which which seems a very even split until you go to the fact that Leinster, Munster, Ulster, Connacht are, like, they're essentially clubs. They're defined organisations now, from a, and there's a provincial history to them, but the IRFU don't own the clubs. The clubs own, compose the IRFU. And you've got that split between the professional and the amateur game. So anyway, New Sephora went off, signed up to play the New City Jacks. Is that the name of the Boston team that they ended up playing? New well, City Jacks. Uh, free, <laughs> Jacks. Like free Jacks. Free Jacks. New City Jacks. New Jack New City. New Jack City. <laughs> New Jack City. But the New City Jacks was a pun about like just toilets being opened up in the uh, <laughs> keys, I think, years and years ago in the in the in the Phoenix. But um schedule these matches at like an awkward stage at the at the stage where teams will be going for top four playoffs or else will be going for relegation matches to really force the club's hands um so it was a sort of a bully boy move using his position as of, of complete authority in irish rugby to force through what i think is ill-fitted like i've said it before Clubs don't. The clubs aren't capitalized. So, like, who who would pay these players? It wouldn't be the clubs. And so, how how would the clubs then administer the the, the govern? Like, how, how would they govern these professional players? 
Like they're, they're just being used. The jerseys are just being used. They could uh, appoint a strong CEO one day, <laughs> <laughs> and a board that listens to them, and a, or an supple, an a supple board, an executive vice president is what they need in there. <laughs> so they're really just borrowing the jerseys, and you're going, oh, we'll have like you know Corcon, and who are you going to have from Limerick? Gary Owen. What happens to the cookies? What happens to Shannon? What happens if the you know vice versa? Who are you going to have in Dublin? You're going to have Tarf and Lansdowne, north and south the river, nice and close to the city. Best record in Division 1 over the last few years. Connacht, you're going to have Weegens and Buccaneers. Buccaneers. And in Ulster, who are you going to have? Like Hinch and there aren't any Ulster teams in Division 1. You're going to have to have a team in yeah. Belfast. They're all, got, in, got, they're all in 1B, aren't they? They're all There's in, loads in 1B this yeah. year. Yeah. yeah. Dungannon are traditionally the strongest but with Ballymena. But so Dungannon they, and Ballymena were the, the big traditional ones. Yeah. yeah, outside of Belfast. But they're like, neither of them are from uh, major population hubs. Like if you're going to have a pro team, you want it to be in Belfast. Mm. So Harlequins at one stage, which was an amalgamation of clubs, uh, were strong. But, you know, it's it's Hinch are the strongest recently. Gannon and uh, Ballymena traditionally, I would say. And certainly in, in AAL history. So like, it's a very awkward fit. And uh, Jerry Thornley, like Jerry Thornley drinks in Mulligans. So the, the guy who's the president of Lansdowne this year is... Um, Mr. Mulligan. The, he is Mr. Mulligan. He's the proprietor of Mulligans, the, the bar in Sandy Mount. That is Jerry Thornley's local. Uh, so like Jerry, it, it's, and it, it's hard push to say struggling clubs and then interview the president of Lansdowne. <laughs> like of all, the, of all the clubs in the country, um, Lansdowne are far from the most of the struggling. Um, did did he raise some interesting points? I think the point that was the most interesting for me was the idea of the schools against the clubs. So there's an enormous amount of kids playing rugby at the moment in rugby clubs as a consequence of mini rugby. It's it's just mushrooms. It's rocketed. When I was a kid, the only time we played in the rugby club was in the dead ball after the matches or playing tipper with your dad if Richard had organized a game mm. on a Sunday morning. And like it was deadly, but it like it wasn't it wasn't regular. It wasn't clockwork. And which followed which you'd have to say with the organization and the prevalence of underage uh GA in Dublin, rugby just just copied what the GAA were already doing. Took the level of organization uh, probably copied some of the drills the volunteers the parents the social scene and it's brought back a huge amount of vibrancy to rugby clubs it's 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 in like all these minis take place on Sunday morning whereas previously you just used to be hung over fellas collecting their cars <laughs> and like That's and, so true and hung over seconds and hung over A's fourths teams like and meeting to go and play and like that was that was it, and you know, like, geez, the dressing rooms probably hadn't even been cleaned from the previous day, and like, that was that was just life, like that was that was what clubs were. Whereas now, like, getting in and out of the car can't park, get park can't get car park, can't get parking on the road, like, I mean, all these places are absolutely black, so it's brilliant. And then the schools are the dominant rugby strength, rugby voice mm -hmm. in in underage rugby, and they they hold sway. So if a guy wants to, a guy can't, like if, a, if he's picked for a school, he can't play for his club. So then all of a sudden, where the clubs actually have put in a bit of effort, and like look, oftentimes it's, it's the kid's parents, it's not necessarily like the club, but one and the same, you know, the parents have put the effort into the club, the parents have trained the kids up, the club has given the, the infrastructure, and they can legitimately the say that that's where the kid got his that's, love of rugby that's from. That's where the kid learned and got his love of rugby from. You know, when he was going down at five or six or four, whatever age the kid starts, mm -hmm. he plays for three years or maybe four years, whatever. And that's where he starts playing rugby. That's not an insignificant portion of time. And Brian O'Driscoll was a small 15-year-old. Now, he was obviously a good small 15-year-old. But he played at, in transition year, under 16, he played for Tarf. And he would say that playing for Tarf was something that sort of kindled, or can you rekindle at 16? Are you too young? Yeah, but you like can, basically yeah. found a love of rugby away from the seriousness of cup match playing for Black Rock by just playing with his mates and been able to try a few things. And that obviously gave him like, you know, pretty grew coincidentally and came back as a not so small 17 year old uh, who like kept growing and kept getting stronger. But like he'd reference playing club rugby as, as an underage player as being a very enjoyable part um, of his 
of his rugby journey. But I have to say, though, that it is, you, with the amount of training that schools do, I can only speak from a Leinster point of view, that they cannot go out and play, train, whatever, four times a week, play a match on Saturday, and then go and play for their club on Sunday. So they're going to lose. If you're playing schools rugby, I don't see how you can combine that over an extended period of time, maybe for one year, maybe in transition year or whatever. But I don't see how you can extend that by training and playing for your club. No, it's a good point. So I, I went to watch uh, I went to watch Michaels play Black Rock this year in a friendly match. And I bumped into Trevor Hogan, who works for Leinster. So I know Trev. And he was saying, like, this is like this is where we get all our players from. Like he and he he'd go and watch a match throughout the winter on a on a Saturday wherever around the place and like Graham Henry was at that match I think I've referred to this before but like he wasn't the only one there's about a thousand people uh, at this friendly match um, it was it was the day that Ireland played New Zealand Graham Henry was being hosted or was going for lunch with Leo Cullen because Leo was there with them so like it wasn't like Graham Henry had flown up to watch this match either. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Michaels versus Rock. Yeah, sure. it's, <laughs> Dates you're out here for the next 10 years to <laughs> till he's given away his summer roots. Um, and that's like the IRF, I go back to it like the IRFU aren't gonna kill that golden goose. No, with no. the with because the, what you're saying, like the, the level of professionalism, the, professionalism isn't the right word. There is, mm, is it? There are professional coaches. There are definitely guys mm. who are professional coaches. Applying professional applying standards. Applying professional standards because... But the players aren't paid. And the players are tremendously dedicated. Yeah. But they're obviously not paid. It's an elite level of dedication. But it is an elite, an elite, elite level, level of, dedication. like, excellence for a troop. Like, their academies of excellence, effectively. Yeah. And they ha achieve outstanding results <laughs> in the field of excellence. <laughs> So that's that's the structure of Irish rugby, and it's it's not unique because New Zealand have exactly the same thing, and they they talk about the clubs are con like the clubs are concerned at the lack of playing numbers uh, compared to what they used to have, and just like how different the environment is, and the fact that their kids can't. I think play that for is a, throughout the teams. I I agree that there's a big uh, impact on that from the amount of the increasing standards applied to schools rugby, but I also think it's a wider societal issue in in terms of playing uh sports later into life after schools i think that is sorry explain what you mean by that i just think that more and more as people leave the uh, structured school environment or underage environment and just start growing up i think fewer and fewer i think they're possibly less time uh to spend uh, playing sports together and also people make the choice not to spend more time socially you see that and this is extremely big picture stuff but people spend more time alone that's a societal mm -hmm. thing uh that they don't that they have a wider community but that is not not as much face-to-face -face contact yeah that they are involved in it's probably more time commuting and more time working definitely more time more time keeping in touch with like-minded people on the internet for example mm -hmm. You know, you could pick and choose your friends from a much wider panel now, but how are your friends, etc. Mm -hmm. um, the system has in in New Zealand is that they've prior they have the kind of bifurcated. These are schools players. These are clubs players as well. Is that how it works over there? No, the schools are very much the the path of excellence. So the big schools in New Zealand are Auckland Grima. Very much run on, on the on the same lines as the the big schools in Ireland, where they've got very well coordinated, very um, very well coaching schools, setups, yeah. um, very good campus, um, very well appointed uh, facilities, and a huge and, emphasis on it coming down from the very top of the tree, and. Because of where New Zealand is, frequently they will give scholarships to Islander kids um, who are really good rugby players and just don't have the wherewithal, don't have the financial resources to ever think of going to those schools. So, like, Jerome Kano would be the one that I'd be the most familiar with, given the, the sort of the background of reading the, the book. Peter Bill's Peter book. Bill's book. Um, but there, there's, there's loads of guys like Kano. And... 
uh, you know, Fijians, I suppose, predominantly, that are... Sivivato, I believe, Sivivato was a scholarship was, yeah, one. I thought yeah. it was Sivivato, all right, yeah. Um, and, like, is is that is that right? Like, Bills puts a, sort of an argument on it. Like, it, you look at it objectively and you sort of go, it looks like a win-win. Um, in much the same way that Michael Orr was the, the subject of the blind side, and you go... Like if, if Michael Orr was a little black kid with a limp rather than a like six foot eight or six foot ten, behemoth, super yeah. behemoth, fast twitch fiber, super athlete black kid, was a rich white family down in Tennessee going to take yeah. him in? You got to go, no, because they didn't take anybody else in. But they're talking Michael Orr and like s- such is the way of the world. Yeah, you know, you can, and I, I have thought about this a bit and, I've conflicting opinions on it because it is an opportunity. It's a very good opportunity. Um, it's also against that is it's it's also an opportunity for the school not just to excel in athletics but also cynically promote itself as providing opportunities to disadvantaged people or people who have less advantage than their average student. Well, what they really want from it is if they could do that to to guys who weren't superb athletes. Mm-hmm. And I suppose one of the best sports documentaries ever is called Hoop Dreams, focused on two of these kids who were from the projects, went to high schools. William Gates did his knee. Arthur Agee ended up like flunking out of the school, but come to a state final in a different high school. Um, and there was a picture of William Gates' parents. They were going to one of the big universities. Um, I'm going to say it was in Chicago. I think yeah, it was Northwestern. Yeah. And just looking around and going, my goodness, like we just, just didn't know this existed. And Hoop Dreams was a be- and I think Hoop Dreams portrayed that sort of cynicism and opportunity. Brilliantly. Brilliantly. They, I, if anybody hasn't seen it, it's it's a phenomenal watch. I think it's, I think it's probably 25 years old this year. My recollection it was made in 1994. Uh, and it's phenomenal. Um. To re- so to rewind a bit then back from the uh, from the New Zealand picture, um, you had said something to me about, um, well, why are clubs fielding so many less teams than they were? This is a point that came up in Tony's article. Why, why are clubs fielding so many less teams than they were 20 years ago or 10 years ago? And, you know, is it to do with the, is it to do with the success of professional rugby? Anecdotally, if you speak to guys who were involved in clubs before the AAL, and there was an issue, there was originally only two divisions of the AAL. So the, the, when people talk about the clubs in the media, I would say people like when Thorny and Brent Fanning, who are the guys who write about it at a, at a high profile level, talk about it, they're talking about uh, the first teams of clubs, and they're usually talking about Division One A of those first teams of clubs, and that's kind of seen like that's projected as what clubs are. Before that, All Ireland League. Um, like there's 50 teams in the All-Ireland League now. Mm-hmm. When the All-Ireland League started, I'm going to say there was 18, there was two divisions and nine, I think, off the top of my head. Um, and the first in the club were the first among equals. But then you had a load of clubs, certainly around Leinster, fielding down to like the sevenths, mm. the eighths. And at Cups season, you would get like teams being stacked and all, all sorts of nefarious activities, but also you would get... Uh, Guys from the club going to support the club at whatever at whatever level. Now, like I, I'm not saying you get five thousand people at like a sixth final, but if there was the right personalities involved, if it was a final, uh, you would get a significant number. And once the first came in, and this was like hit hardest at seconds level, and then just sort of filtered up, the first team coach just said, "I need these guys." So a guy then would be coming back from. As they come back from, he'd be traveling back to Dublin from Cork or from Belfast or wherever, and he'd be on the bus, and the lads would be on the lash, and he'd just be like, "Oh, texting on a Saturday night, I can't play." Not even text, like just the way it evolved, I can't play, and that would be fine with the first team coach because he was getting paid in how the first team did. Whereas used, that used to happen. Now, if you were just playing in your province, you weren't going down to Cork. You might have been going down to play, a, you know, like a prestige friendly. Mm-hmm. But it was like a mini tour. Like everyone, everyone was going down. It's sort of yeah. the rules of engagements were set. So the seconds got shot on, and then if the seconds got shot on, the rest of the junior rugby got shot on. So that's one. That's one bit of it. 
The second bit of it is that if you look at two of the teams in Division 1A now are UCD and Trinity. So UCD... And UCC. And UCC. Good point. Good point. Um, and from a Leinster perspective, the Macquarie Cup was set up in 1970. It ran until just after Christmas time. It used to get like quality finals at Christmas time. Brilliant games, yeah. And the idea was to integrate guys into the club and thereafter they would play for whatever team. You know, they would find their level and they would play. So they'd half a season playing with their mates half a season integrating with the rest of the club or not playing at all. That's under-20s competition. It was an under-19s competition. It was expanded to under-20s in the early 90s because some clubs couldn't, didn't have enough uh, 19s to field a team, so an extra year of underage gave them the capacity, but the season still ran up to Christmas. And then UCD said, "We'll, we'll provide a scholarship sort of opportunity for these guys before Leinster had said they would do it UCD said they would do it and the under 20 season was stretched out the entire year so under 20s became isolated from the rest of the clubs under 20s in some instances became club seconds teams or else they definitely became the club's thirds teams and the guys never integrated and I would say that the extension of the under 20 season to the complete rugby season uh, has been one of the worst things for just rugby in Leinster. Now, the competition on its own is good, but it just isolated a load of guys and they get told they're great and, you know, they get given the kit and, you know, they're very well looked after and you can't blame people for being looked after, but, like, it's senior rugby. You're a man. Stand on your feet. Like, it's... Yeah, it's the difference in the old uh, NFL drafts before there was a collective bargaining agreement, the rookies got the biggest contracts. If they got drafted in the first round, they were getting huge contracts, contracts which absolutely uh, dwarfed those of established veteran players. Now, they might have been had bigger reps, they might have... But that's because they hadn't had to prove themselves at this extremely high level. And it's an equivalent to what happens in clubs. Guys who might be long-term club players... Made it, made it played a few years on the first, mostly junior players. Bit of a kick of the teeth seeing all the 20s come in, fresh out of diapers, basically, and getting lauded and getting all the, all the gear and getting so well taken care and of. And then, then typically, but, and it's not even like how well the guys look. You know, you can't... I wouldn't protest against the 20s being well looked after, but the issue comes that the following season, they're training with the first, you know, the first team panel. And if they're not up to it, they don't make it. They just fall away. And they sort of look down their noses or they just or they just don't know anybody. Like, they're not even, like, aren't, we're not talking about, like, 19-year-old and 20-year-old lads are just that, like, that arrogant. They just don't know anybody. They haven't been integrated into the club. And, like, that's the idea of the club. Yeah. Is that it's a club. It's, it's, it's not some hierarchical, I mean, they have teams, but... There's a thing that, um, that struck me there was that for period when professionalism came in in Irish rugby we seem to be very bad at turning hot shot senior cup players into, into Irish internationals that we, we, we thought they could be and <coughs> part of the doubts were they actually even good enough or is, is it is it much harder if you know the guy I see winning the Leinster Senior Cup Schools Cup Surely he he should play. For, he should be able to play for Ireland if he's the captain of the senior cup team or something like that. What do you mean, like well, directly it, after the following? Well, season? no, 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 no. I just mean like he, that guy should have a. And then when it, when professionalism came in, it was like, oh, maybe maybe it's maybe there's a bigger a bigger well, gap. But the then, AAL code, like the first decade of the AAL, was exactly equivalent with the worst decade of Irish rugby. That is, yeah, that is an interesting interesting test. It's a test case. Then is with like you've got this very you know exactly a very poor international team to go into so it's hard to hard to judge sorry to say what i'm saying more succinctly there was a point where like the early 90s tearing your teams that i saw and mid 90s tearing your teams that i saw win senior cups i don't think there's any international player or gervin dempsey yeah okay but there, but there was one but yeah but but the case from having done the five up series again on the blog. Oh, sorry, sorry, my, sorry, sorry my, going back to your question. My point was that there was, it seemed like it was, we, we had a real problem bridging the gap between a high school superstar and professional player for a couple of years. 
and we've gotten really good at doing that now at professional level. But at the club level, there's no process for that. No, there isn't. There isn't the culture. There isn't their environment. Who's who's going to pay these guys to do all the like? Who's going to pay all the strength and conditioners? How 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 distributed do you want these guys? How many guys actually have the capacity to play test match rugby? What I was going to say about the, looking at the fiber programs and sort of mulling over the merits of the academy. One of the things that really hit me was that once you're in the academy, and it usually, what, what, do, what do guys do now leaving school? Is it sub-academy, development academy? Is that the, the order no, of the No, it goes sub-academy. Almost everyone goes into the sub-academy. Very few go straight into the academy these days. So typically a year in the sub-academy. Some people do more. Uh, but typically a year and then into an academy deal. The academy deal is now year by year rather than a three-year contract, which it originally was. Okay, and it's it's... But it's proposed to be have a three-year term, is that it? A three-year term, yeah. But you can be assessed, if you're not performing, you can be cut after a year or two years. Okay. So the way I saw it was like a, like a four-year undergrad program in terms of sub, sub-academy and then you'd major in rugby going into the academy for three years. And the, the thing that really hit me was if you were picked up in the academy and then you got a bad injury, you didn't fall off the radar. That's key. You were immediately given a rehab program, you were put into a system with other, like team rehab with the other guys, like internationals who were in the gym at the same time, convalescing from their own injuries, training with them, talking about recovery, giving exposure to physios. If you weren't recovering properly, you went to, you got a second opinion from another doctor and you weren't forgotten about. Whereas if you were really good and then you got a bad knee injury and then you went to America on a J1 for a summer and then you came back two stone heavier, you know, like, such yeah, is life. and like the the point with regards to the academy and sub academy, the sub academy has their own strength and conditioning coaches, their own rehab coaches. Like there are physios in in the academy who are rehab physios. So you're not the physios after thought after he's dealt with the players who are playing. He's out on the pitch, and then he comes in and sees you. They're dedicated people to making sure you get back on the pitch, which is that is, I would say, the you. There's a huge amount of elements that go into the academy in terms of the training that they get in nutrition, resting, um, training and resting. <laughs> they do, though. They're told what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, strength and conditioning is huge. Injury rehabilitation is huge. Don't Leinster have an input, say, sending uh, guys out to the schools as well to give them advice on the, how they train? Or is it just the well, schools Well, there's CCRLs, hire... you know, there's, there's community... And club relations officers, which Leicester are always trying to get more, uh, more of them. I think all the provinces are trying to get more of them. Uh, these are the people who, at the very bottom of the the TIB, the Talent Identification Protocol or program, are the guys who say, "Oh, there's a there's a 16 year old in Tolo. You know, he's uh, he's carrying a bit of weight, but he could really move. He's playing at number eight. I don't think he's ever going to be tall enough." You know, the next time he comes into one of these, whatever, top 50 in his in his region, somebody should have a word with him and say... But, but you're talking about hypotheticals. Like, there's this enormous shot putter in Kilkenny or discus thrower. Well, or he's, both. In a, he's in America now. He's in America now. But like, yeah. what was that kid's name? Uh, Anu Awanusi from Kilkenny College, who was coming close to... He was coming close to national Irish records as a thrower, as a schoolboy. An enormous unit of a man. Just... Uh, and I know that uh, I remember talking to briefly talking to, to Jerry Murphy about him, and he said, "Oh no, he's he's going to stick with the uh, going to stick with the heavy ball." <laughs> <laughs> so, but so it's not just like the these sort of apocryphal fellas. No, they're anywhere. Like there's yeah. there's real like high highly talented athletes are on the radar, and there's ones you know there's ones that get away, like Nash, like Nash, like Nash. <laughs> And like me, football be kicking themselves about Nash as well. So Hugh O'Sullivan's brother, I didn't realise, Hugh O'Sullivan's brother plays uh, inter-county football yeah, for Meath. Yeah, but, and the other brother's an inter-county hurler for Meath. And, but like Nash played for... Meath hurler. It wasn't yeah. Simmonstown. Simmonstown. Yeah. And won a club championship for Simmonstown at like 18. Yeah. And with, they went uh, off to Hawthorne with an offer of, I think, skipping the academy to go into Leinster. I think, that's, I think that was what they were going to have to roll out because the... It was his decision to 
that's the sport he wants to play. I've I've never been able to bend my head around that. But maybe oh, like he's he's doing well. He's playing for Hawthorne Hawks now in the AFL this year. After they only have one year as a rookie, but um, as an international rookie to go from you know to, to start playing for the uh, Hawthorne Hawks when you're eighteen 20, or twenty, yeah. is incredible. So that 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 goes back to to sort of answer your question about teams that win the cup. The teams that win the cup do have talented players on them. Like James Ryan came from... James Ryan didn't win the cup, I don't think. But he came... Levy did. But both of them came from St. Michael's, who have a very well-organized program, extremely well-organized program. So really well-organized teams, really well-funded organized teams, win the cups. And it's a great grounding for players to go on and have a professional career. But the best athletes can come from anywhere. Exactly. The best athletes can be Awanusi, can be Nash, can be... Furlong. Furlong. Uh, can be Greg O'Shea, who's playing for the Sevens, the Shannon guy. The and sprinter. The sprinter, who's like a sub-11 guy. But there's another guy up in Bangor who was training with Ulster uh, oh. last season. The schoolboy lad, Schoolboy, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's like, he's in school this year. Yeah. Uh, like, he's 10-4 or something Aaron like Sexton, that. I think his name Aaron would be. Aaron Sexton. Yeah. yeah. Like, he's, he's, he's a 10 400 He's electric. Runner. And, you know, then you have Jordan Conway and Robert Balakum as well. Yeah. You know, so, like, these these are the guys that go on to pro careers because, like, they're super athletes. The athletic ability is becoming more and more important, especially as a Ford. You know, the difference between a guy who's a super prop and a fellow who is a super athlete who can become a prop, it's turning more towards the super athlete who can become... And that's a that's the classic game for all shapes and sizes position, prop. It so used then, to be the fatties. The, well, the, it seems then like we're in danger of producing more professional quality players than we can uh, provide an audience for. Well, that's not a huge danger, though. No, no it's not a danger. But say, and like more and more guys are going to have to leave Ireland to get a professional game if they're good enough, and they will be good enough. Again, like, like, like New Zealanders. Do. Again, that's good, you know, that yeah. you're, you're creating, uh, that these guys who are really good at something can go and get a job somewhere else. I think that's, that's healthy. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't see that as a, like I don't see us become, like if we become exporters of rugby talent, which you already have been to a degree, uh, but it, that of course, like I can't see another way that it would happen because more the academies are getting more efficient, and uh, players are demographics. More kids coming on. Yeah, and, but players, the, the guys who go into academies now, they know what's required of them earlier. It seems, and they can, if they don't make it in Leinster, there's there's other opportunities in in other places for them to make a living playing rugby, which is really good. Someone needs to stop him. Let's move on to a second topic that I... Let's do the quick fire ones. Well, one I want to I want to talk about is Leinster used their 56th player of the season. It was Will O'Connor, I think. He played last season, That's right, so it wasn't yeah. his debut. Will Connors. Will Connors, sorry. Um, he, we... That ma- that Terminator, ma- is that... <laughs> <laughs> That's, it is Will Connors, isn't it? No, uh, it's not Will Connors. It's someone else Connors. Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor. Was... John Connor. John, John Connor. Connor. So, good man. Give you close your boots in your motorcycle. Leinster used their 56th player of the season, Will Connors, uh, who had already made a debut last season, I believe, yeah. but then recovered from an injury and made his debut, his season debut at the weekend. That's one more player than uh, last season when they won the double. Um, is there something to worry about with the number of players they're playing? Is it a good thing? Should we actually hope that all the four provinces are managing to play 56 players a season? Well... If they're all going to have knockout games. Yeah, if they're all going to have knockout games, well, some of those guys aren't going to be playing in the knockout games. Um, Typically, the squad strengths run at around 44, 45. So when they say they use 55 or 56, when anybody is using 55 or 56, it means you're going into the academy and you're using 11 players or 12 players, or in Leinster's case this year, it's... I think it's 12 players in the academy. Davis, they had started the started the season with a strength of 44. They loaned out Tom Daly to Connacht, who's now gone uh, full-time there, and Ian Nagel to Ulster. So their playing strength was down to 42, uh, and that doesn't take into account injuries. So they've used 12 academy players. I think the academy is 20 or 21 strong. 
So you don't necessarily want to expose first-year academy players to um, to Pro 14 rugby because someone come in at a different stage of physical readiness than others. Uh, it's not like Leinster have 56 fully professional. They don't have a squad of 56 fully professional players. When you get up to that number, when you get over 45, typically you're talking how many academy players are used. You know, there's academy first-year players like Jack Dunn has recently, I think he started five, or played in and started one, played in five, started one since Christmas. And he's he's uh, he's taken really well to the to the pro level. Um, it used to be, I didn't think that it was, I didn't think it was really plausible for, you know, first-year academy second rows to play at pro 14 level. Certainly not at the tough end of the pro 14. Um against good sides like Treviso, fully loaded, well-coached sides like Treviso and, and Glasgow. But Dunn has played in those games and done pretty well. Um, you know, James Ryan is a complete outlier. Ian Henderson is an... Oh, he's another outlier besides... He's, he's, <laughs> he's almost a reachable outlier. Like Ryan is a ridiculous once-in-a-generation talent. And not saying Henderson's not massively talented. But um, so I don't think... I think the the clarification I have you have to draw is that there's a pro squad in players on senior development contracts, and then there's an academy squad. Mm-hmm. The string, the the thing that struck me from very much a Leinster perspective, but curious about the ecosystem was that watching Jack McGrath go up to to Ulster, and so I think he's been taken make contract. I think it's different than Jordy Murphy, but I understand for Irish rugby, why you would want to move uh, a line, why you would want to move your best loose head at the last World Cup to a different province when he's not getting started in rugby. Mm. I understand that. What did, what I find, I want to see the fallout of this, is that Leinster are where the vast majority of the young players come from. Like there, there's Leinster players all over the, the provinces, the rest of the teams, the other three provinces is that you can go in, if you're Jack Dunn, and play first-team rugby because you have Jack McGrath playing and because like, you might have Jack McGrath on the bench. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a quality there that allows you to bring through young players. And I wonder if you, car- if you, hi- you, know, if you carve out, if you hollow out, that level of top quality in your squad of guys who are available all the time to squad players. I'm not talking about like uh, international players because they never play. If you carve out the likes of Jack McGrath, who, who comes off the bench for Leinster? They, they're not going to be as strong. And how does that impact on the guys coming through? Maybe it's a boon, but maybe it just makes life an awful lot harder for them. Mm-hmm. And, like, whose problem is that? It's probably Leinster, like it's Leinster's problem. But, just, you know, what's the impact on the development of players? Because that's kind of, that's the law of unintended consequences. And it was always one of the great arguments which people had for why... We should have such and such uh, a non-Irish qualified player. It's because he's there to help young players as well. Yeah, it's interesting that I mean, the other say the other um, situation, and this is probably Nusa Four is doing. So say McGrath stays his second choice loose head at Leinster. There's not much more of an opportunity for the third choice or fourth well, choice. Well, that's no. The, see, that's not accurate. Like Jack McGrath slipped down he started the season with an injury i think got injured again and then he got dropped because he wasn't performing so no, the guy uh, who took his place is now second jack mcgrath's third choice i know but let my example bear sorry don't, ignore the jack mcgrath's a specific example but the idea that say leinster have double stacked internationals at most positions and then the next guy is, is struggling to get a game so he goes but he's a sort of a lesser level and he's going up to ulster and he's struggling to make an impact there whereas he's making a bigger impact at a at a winning team, and he gets more confident, and he gets and he gets maybe better coaching at, at Leinster, and so you end up, I don't know, m- managing all the Irish resources better by moving one guy up to Ulster who needs to rekindle and get a bit of hunger back, and then the next guy getting a bigger opportunity and him sort of stepping up to the plate. Oh yeah, there's that, there's, there's definitely an argument for that, and I think the loose head, uh, like Eric O'Sullivan, kind of. Eric O'Sullivan wasn't even like the number three loose head from Leinster who moved up to Ulster and became first choice and has really benefited from him. He's He would be probably the number five loose head. Keane Healy, Jack McGrath, Peter Doody. Ed Byrne. Ed Byrne. 
That's it, really. That's it. And Lockman went down. Yeah. And, and, Porter, and Porter moved over. Yeah, well, so, Lockman and Porter both moved to tight head. You know, yeah. both moved to tight head. So, you know, you're, you're going down a good bit down the depth chart. And the, the ability to play pro rugby at a first-team level is still there. Um, I guess just if you, if you want to move on to Munster, you're looking at... Albie, and talk about the farm player. You're going to Albie Matthewson, who came in as a medical joker and was kept. And I like I don't think he's legit in that sort of like by the IRFU protocols. Monster of like what five or six crumb halves on their books. Yeah, Andy McGeady yeah, Matt- raised with him on Twitter and he sniped back and and Andy well, McGeady's point I didn't was see that. And it was it was a good while ago. I think it was the, a number of months ago. Yeah, it was a number of months ago before Christmas and the rounds the round of games when Murray was back and he was still coming on in the Euro- European games, I think it was. Yeah. And he had sort of made the point that he was like, like the whole system was that you would come in to fill in a space for an international or something, and now you're still here, it's staying on. And then Matheson made a comment back to him, so. But Matheson's priorities are completely different than yeah. Yeah. Irish yeah, rugby. Like, yeah. Matheson's in his 30s. Uh, you know, he's coming to the end of his career. He's, he's been peripatetic. He's moved around the place. And... You know, he doesn't want to go. have to go and find another contract. Yeah, move my family around. And he's been really good for Munster. Like, he's been an app, he's been a season changer, I would contend, for Munster. Yeah, but it's not, it's, it's not his responsibility. Like, his, his sole responsibility lies in signing a contract and playing the games. Yeah. But, you know, he's now been extended until the end of the World Cup. He was, they announced an extension for him until the end of the season in February. And then in March, they announced another extension for him until the end of the next World Cup. So he's had three extensions on this deal. Munster, in the meantime, and very early in the season, in October, announced that they'd signed Nick McCarthy from Leicester, who was a two-year Irish under-20 scrum half, who captained him in the second year and played 18 of 19 games or something like that. So now, in this, the Pro 14 starts about a month later than usual, but I think there's going to be five games running during the period of the World Cup in Japan. Um, so they've signed Nick McCarthy, and then they've just decided that they're going to re-sign Albie Matheson. Now, they're out halves in the Munster squad. They've, Ian Keatley will be gone officially to Treviso. He's already in London Irish. Um, Joey Carberry is looking very likely to go to... Uh, the World Cup Tyler Blaindal is playing well at the moment possibly might change some people's ideas about the makeup of the World Cup tournament but then you have JJ Hanron who's going to be uh, 27 probably during that uh, during that period so the idea that JJ Hanron needs a 34 year old all black to hold his hand and guide him through games is a nonsense clearly mm. and they also handed out another contract to like a fifth choice scrum half as well uh, club guy well no you know they can't all be fifth choice yeah you know Cronin Neil Cronin who but you know at that stage they'll have on their books Stafford Cronin uh, Nick McCarthy and also Craig Casey who was so good for the under 20s this year so they will go into next season the start of next season again with five scrum halves six scrum halves on the books because Conor Murray's on the books uh, which is a farcical situation and clearly New Sephora sh- should have just said Thank you very much for your work. I'll be much appreciated. You're done at the end of the season. Uh, I, I, that, that is one of these things for when, uh, whenever I hear the phrase for the good of Irish rugby, I always hear for the good of my province. Mm. You know? Let me ask you a question then. Um, this, a lot of these uh, sort of the, the 54th, 55th and 56th uh, Leinster players yeah. getting their starts this season are probably only doing so because Leinster have played, uh, what, four league games in a row that haven't, like they haven't mattered a jot. They can't even finish. It's three rubbers so far. It was like, Edinburgh, Treviso and now Glasgow. But there's the finals in St. James's Park so they can't lose a home final. They're going to get a home semi since the 1st of March or something like that. 2nd of March. 2nd of <laughs> March. So like finals in Celtic Park. Of the oh sorry pro fourteen wrong way around yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Celtic Park um, paradise, paradise. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> will we play out with that so yeah so the, I, I was trying to figure out and I I, I don't I'm gonna need a, a spreadsheet to do it but 
you told me that uh, now Glasgow are one match point ahead of Leinster in the other in the other conference. Yeah, because Leinster have had the brakes on for uh, like a month and a half. Well, no, Leinster don't have. There's nothing. There's nothing further for them to to do. And you can talk these negligible goals like having the most wins in the history of the Pro 14. That's surreal. They've they did score the most tries in the history of the. It's Pro Rugby, Pro 14, Pro 12. They have to manage their resources. It's not a, but it's not a competition with lo- loads of like historical records. It's only no. existed for less than 20 years and it changes its name every three years. So like, yeah. you know. So no, they, they have this, they're playing a series of dead rubbers now. Um, and you have the situation where players have their eye, one eye at least, on the game. Which is a big game for them, you know. It's the it's the Heineken Cup semi final, and not just the players, the coaches. The coaches have to manage the resources of the team. They have to train so that they will be as ready, as prepared, as fit as possible for the semi final of the Heineken. And Cup. if you're in a situation where you play a game that is absolutely meaningless to where you are in the league because you've already qualified three, and you decide, oh, we're going to go full bore, and you lose three players out injured, you know yeah. how. That is dreadful management. Mm-hmm. It's dreadful management. Um, and it can happen to anybody. And you know, uh, the injuries, I mean. Yeah, so re- realistically, the conference system is only in place because of the two South African teams who are signed up for how many more years? Oh, I think it's three more years. I think it was a five-year deal initially. And um, they have added... Nothing so far. They got the worst team two years in a row, and one team that's not qualified for. The, no, sorry, they, they got cheaters. Cheaters were good. They got knocked out. Cheaters are a reasonable team. In the barrage. They're nothing special. Yeah. They really aren't anything special. No. It's not like adding Natal. Yeah. So I've when it came in, the reason I disliked it, I would almost say, is aesthetically, you could you could totally understand why the Italians joined the league because that's the other four countries in the Six Nations. The only reason that the South Africans joined the league is money, and there's not even that much money involved. So I have I have no truck with... Uh, I really have no truck with South Africans in the, in the Pro 14 in terms of, in terms of two South Africans. I, don't, I think it's bizarre. The home and away fixture is diluted. I know it's a different thing where you have to... For almost for most games in the Pro Twelve, you have to get on a ferry or a plane to go and see your team if you're playing away, apart from the Interpros. But to have to get on a plane for ten hours is ridiculous. Like, yeah. Uh, so you had uh, raised an issue about uh, Munster's selection versus. Yeah, it was uh, that struck me as very interesting because I'd looked over having written the the, the last article I think that I wrote was in the very end of last year. And I was uh, counting up, you know, the exposure that Munster Academy players were getting compared to their uh, equivalents in other provinces. And I looked at it again, just about uh, about, uh, about three or four days before Van Graan announced his team to play Treviso. And at that stage, between Christmas and whatever it was, the 5th or 6th of April, when I looked at it, he had only given one player, any minutes. It was Gavin Coombs for 28 minutes. So it had come to this to this point where, you know, there I think 20 players in their academy and they'd played 10 games in that period and one player had been given 28 minutes and that was it. Um, it was a staggeringly low proportion of game time. It was 0.2%. So... With the team that he selected against Treviso, which was not an inconsequential match for Munster, that he picked Coombs, uh, he picked Shane Daly on the wing, and Finine Wickerloo is actually in the in the senior squad. But it was a y- much younger team than he normally picks, and they played a, a really good game. They got a, a win against a very good Treviso side, and it's it's something that Van Grand is going to. I think he's going to concentrate on it a little more. I think there's going to be a clear out of a number of players. Keatley, as we mentioned earlier, has gone to London Irish first, then it'll be Treviso. Mike Sherry's on loan to Gloucester. Stephen Fitzgerald has got, was on loan to Connacht. Now he's signed a senior deal. Um, 
and there would be a couple of players who went on to Cara Cup from the from their senior squads, um, Williams and Hart, the two scrum halves, who I think that shows that they're surplus to requirements. And then Taute is very lo- uh, heavily rumoured to be going to Leicester. So there's he's going to, I think there'll be a, a significant turnover in, in terms of the Munster squad. And it was it was interesting to see that he had made that decision to send these older guys over to America and to actually play academy players for really the first time in, in the 2019. I think, I think particularly interesting given that in the same week he signed a two-year deal. And I think it's, it's, it's worth highlighting because he's not Leo Cullen. He's, he's not like the three-time Heineken, Heineken Cup, Cup winning, winning captain. captain club legend. Um, international rugby player with with the stature that goes with that, um, where you're sort of parachuted in, and I don't want to say Leo is given the space to fail because he operates in the media capital of Ireland, but Van like Van Gran is a pro coach who landed his first big gig, his first real proper director of rugby gig, not just putting out the cones and kind of, you know, clapping along. Given the interviews mid-game. Given the, yeah, given the mid-view <laughs> intergames. Like, you know, he wants to be a pro coach. And you, you wind back to the conversation we're having about the schools and you go like, that's where a lot of the pro, the aspiring pro coaches come from. Because you can make a living, like nominally you're a school teacher, but... You're there to coach rugby. Yeah, and it is it is the you have that um beanbag to fall into if you're actually a teacher as well. You have yeah, pension, etc. And you have you've got a pension, you've a proper job. Um and like you're not a complete waster. That's that's not the, the correct word, but you're you know, you're conscientious enough. Mm-hmm. But like you want to be a rugby coach first and foremost, and then you make the step up to becoming a pro rugby coach and having that gig. That's what Van Gran is at. Yeah, like he, he's, he's a not, ruthless world. He's, he's not Ronan O'Gara, so like he really needs to make this work for him. Like he needs to have uh, our friend Albie Matthewson playing for him at scrum half rather than Duncan Williams. And the IRFU have made a decision, I think, to to really concentrate on picking the best coaches. Like oh, doing, yeah. doing the research and like getting McFarland, taking a bit of a gamble on McFarland, who hadn't been a first team coach, rehabilitating Stuart Lancaster, who's obviously a great coach, who, you know, was damaged goods when he arrived over at Leinster, going to Van Gran, who came over very highly after being stung by another South African with Razzie Erasmus. I certainly think Irish rugby was stung by Razzie, but I don't like he's gone back to coach the Springboks. You wonder, like, yeah. you know, how yeah, badly. Yeah. Um, and then fairly ruthlessly getting rid of Kieran Reid or Kieran Reid like, Kieran Keane Kieran Keane sorry jeez no yeah <laughs> Jesus if only if only with the opportunity um, and then getting in friend which is which has worked friend I believe so is be, a friend of Nusa, of Nusa Fora. Fora. yeah he's yeah so he's well they, they knew each other yeah uh, I think you know I have to say from my from what I've heard Leo was the person rather than Nusa Fora, who approached Stuart Lancaster yeah and it was a case of News 4 rubber stamping it rather than... Rather than his, his yeah. idea. Um, and of... So like you said, it will be very interesting to see what Van Grand does with, uh, you know, two years. Not, not exactly carte blanche, but like with the vote of confidence. Yeah, my... The thing that I think is important, though, is that it's not good enough for the Munster Academy just to produce players for Munster and that they have to start producing players that are capable of playing Test Rugby for Ireland, you know, and, and becoming first-choice players for Ireland. I think that Gavin Coombs is a guy who Van Graan obviously rated because he's, he did pick him while he was in the academy, and he's a guy with great physical potential. He's a really, he's a really good athlete. He's a great size, uh, pace, He's got a competitive edge, the athletic, or the aggressive edge as well. So he's a player who I think has, you know, something about him. But Munster need to produce much. The Munster Academy needs to produce more players like that because it gets a big amount of money now. It doesn't all come from the IRFU. They're sponsored by Green Corps. But it is a well, uh, it's a well 
resourced academy. Um, to build on that, I think there's uh, an element of it's it sort of if you build it, they will come. I think if you give the more you give young players a chance, the more you give them the opportunity to prove you're right that they are able to make a step yeah. up. And yeah. I, I've 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 often thought it a bit about across a number of sports, and I've seen it sort of <clears throat> argued down, especially when talking about um, soccer, by people who are professional coaches who who will say things like, uh, you know. <clears throat> if you're good enough, you'll play. And it's a kind of like, it's a, it's a perfectly circular argument. It's like, if the coach picks you, he's always right, no matter what, because he, mm. because by virtue of you being good enough, the coach picked you. And so you'd never get picked otherwise. It's as if no coach has ever taken a risk or every every professional coach knows everything about their players. It's, yeah. it's not the case. And if you if you give like, I think, say, you know, Finney Wickerley or something like that, a, a, if he gets a big a big game, he can make the step up. I mean that's how that's how so many of like that's how players like Sean O'Brien, they went from being, well, this guy's an interesting prospect to he's playing in a big game. Oh, he made a big impact. Yeah, you and know? you know it doesn't always work out perfectly. No. They don't always come in and blow the doors off, but there's also the learning curve which academy players, especially, I was about to say especially in skill positions, but in every position, every position that <laughs> was a skill position really. You know, not everyone's going to come out of school and be ready for pro rugby like Scott Penny is, for example. There are other players who, that they have potential to be pros and they may not always turn in a performance that is exactly what you're looking for, but you have to build that performance. If you think they're capable of it in the future, that's the time that you have to put in. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think when uh, when Cruyff went back to Ajax, uh, in for his 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 the last sort of stint before his death, mm-hmm. um, and there was a, there was another revolution at Ajax, and Cruyff was given the opportunity to to mold, to model the club again again, and what they chose to do was rotate the coaches for the different age groups. So the under 13s or the under 12s would never have the same coach all the way through the season. You'd have like three different coaches and the guy who coached the 12s would then coach the 9s who then coach the 13s. Mm. Like that would be what he'd do. The idea being that different players would get on well with different coaches, that it wouldn't all become about winning the under 12s. You know, I'm going to coach the under 12s. We're going to win. It's like my job is to develop the players. That's As an underage coach, that's all my job is about. Mm. And also different players react with different coaches and that IX team is playing, that, that generation of kids is now playing right Champions now. League. Right now. Yeah. Mm. yeah. He just bust through the defence. Okay, quick fire round. Uh, Edinburgh win in Edinburgh. Ulster, <laughs> quick fire round. Ulster win in Edinburgh. Yeah, it was super performance. Edinburgh, obviously coming off the, uh, you know, coming off that, Disappointing loss to Munster in the Heineken Cup quarterfinal, a bit of a low ebb. Ross Ford's last ever appearance for Edinburgh. Does he still look like he's the same age as ever? Yeah. <laughs> he's played 14 years of international rugby. The guy had... An Thank God they've got your man McAnally to replace him. Ross Ford is the perpetuation of just like the baddest, most bland era of Scottish rugby where they did nothing. Yeah, but he was a tough, really good player. I... Uh, we talked about the way that it happens, you know, very slowly and then all at once. Uh, so Edinburgh's sort of pedestrian approach to the quarterfinal, uh, which they lost against Ulster's high octane, really exciting, purposeful approach to the quarterfinal, which they lost. Uh, they seem to be two teams in different trajectories. Yeah, good point. Uh, Claremont versus Toulouse, uh, nearly nearly hundred points. Yeah. 47-44, I think, in the end. Um, an amazing second half, full of incident, an appalling hit from Joe Decorey on the Claremont hooker who had gone off and then returned only to get, it looked like a terrible injury. Uh, Roman Pot was refereeing it. It was a, it was a high hit on the head, direct, uh, shoulder directly to the head, two metres away from the line. It was a penalty try, and Poit only gave Decorey a yellow card. It was a an appalling decision from Poit, who had never seen throw in such a hometown performance. Normally, he's uh, uh, his like integrity is unquestioned. Yeah, yeah, but dreadful. Um, 
Johnny Gray tackle machines. What do you rack up? What forty three or something? Like forty three tackles, no misses against Leinster. I've never seen the likes of them. So, life. so Glasgow broke a tackling record that was set by Leinster the previous week. Yeah, is there something to read into that, or is that too small a sample size, and that's just a, like a coincidence? Or is it just those two types of teams that play that kind of way? Treviso, like, Treviso keep the ball really well. They're very aggressive. I thought it was a really good win by Munster. To go over there and win it, brilliant win, yeah. Forty-three tackles is—it's a mind-blowing unreal. effort, it's an absolutely mind-blowing effort. Uh, incredible performance from him. He was—he won man the match, and <laughs> it was. Jeez, that's one every two minutes. Less than that's one every an amazing two. performance. <laughs> Fucking hell. Um, okay. Did you see enough in the um, uh, Toulouse? Defeat of, or defeat defeating uh, Claremont to put the shits up you considering the lot when Toulouse came over here considering we only lost over there by a point mm-hmm. and we could very well have won that game and we came over here they came over here and we bullied them they picked uh, they picked a guy Elstad who's a sort of generic South African he's a huge lump of a fellow I think they normally play him in the second round they picked him at blindside and uh, they had Roy Arnold and Richie Gray in the second row. So it was a very, very big pack. Now, Cyril Boy was playing number one, and he was a, an obvious weak point in all areas of the pitch. But Charlie Falmarino was playing at, at Tighthead and had the best game I've seen since he stopped being an All Black. And then they have pace everywhere in, in the back line, everywhere. Uh, Dupont was playing at 10, which is not his best position. Um, but Holmes playing at 12, they, they mixed and merged really well. So it was like a first five, second five position. It's, it's going to be it's Easter Sunday. It's supposed to be a, a hot, dry day. So it's set up uh, for Toulouse to play their best rugby. Uh, they can score from anywhere and they probably will score from anywhere. Will you pick Noel Reed at 10? Or would you pick Johnny Sexton? <laughs> no, <laughs> no form, Johnny Sexton. No matches, Johnny Sexton. I'd pick Johnny Sexton. Okay. Um, and then lastly... Can I sleep in it? Munster <laughs> um, going to the Rico Arena. Yeah. Um, where yes. Coventry City FC have been booted out of Boo um, to play... Uh, the best team in Europe. Saris with uh, all the controversies they racked up last week, in, mainly for resting a team, uh, resting their players yeah. in, in the in the fashion that no one in the in the top fourteen or the Aviva Premiership would ever do. Um, Munster go there. Is this just another semi final defeat for the bad guys, or can they upset the apple cart? If you'd asked me this uh, a week ago, I would have said Saracens were certainties. I think there's a there's a a chink in, in the armor. Um, but on the balance of probabilities, I think Saracens are too strong. Yeah, I think they've they've won an awful lot of matches. Omani talked about how well he got on with a lot of the players, particularly the Saracens guys, and just made reference to how well they prepare, how mentally well they prepare. He's probably thinking about Owen Farrell more than anybody else. Uh, but also Maro Toje. The Vinopolas, they're very strong. Very strong pack. Very tough to win away in Europe. Yeah, and Saracens aren't, Saracens are a team who've, who've done it all mm-hmm. for the last five years. They've won leagues, cups, everything. So It's not like going away to say Racing, who are waiting for the, the big one, or Claremont, who have exactly. such a history of letting it slip from their grasp. Yeah. Now, the last point I'd like to make before we, something came in hot off the air, just as we were having a, having our, our sushi there earlier. Mark McCafferty is going to move to a new job in CPC. Go away. No, that's what I heard. It's not a Johnny Waters and April Fooler. So to clarify, the head of the premiership who sold a chunk of the premiership to a private equity company has quit his job in the premiership. Well, it's going joined. to. Let's be careful about how we phrase this so we don't get sued. <laughs> Like that's what I do. I saw a snippet of a report. It was uh, Times of London, but that's uh, that's what I uh, what I read there. 
Interesting, because CVC are bidding for the Six Nations. Yeah. I really, I really think that they have to get, they have to get more than the Premiership to make that deal work. I think. Oh, I agree. But it's, uh, it's an interesting one, isn't it? We'll see how that pans out. How, do you, how does a private company bid for the Six Nations? But Six Nations for sale. <laughs> That's the well, for sale from maybe who? who owns it? The unions essentially own it. The unions own it, but they might sell the tournament. Dark days, very dark. Mm. Now I'm a union man, amazed at what I am. I say what I think that the company stinks. Yes, I'm a union man. When we meet in the local hall, I'll be voting with them all. With a hell of a shout, it's out, brothers, out. And the rise of the factories fall. Oh, you don't get me, I'm part of the union. You don't get me, I'm part of the union. You don't get me, I'm part of the union. Till the day I die. Till the day I die. As a union man, I'm wise to the lies of the company spies.